to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Shriver. I am sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James. Okay, my fact this week is that when the world's largest bottle of wine sprung a leak this year, the owner called the local fire department who stopped the spillage with sandbags. <laughs> wow. How big are we talking? We're talking big. It was 9.8 feet tall, mm-hmm. 2.6 tons in weight, and 1,590 litres. Uh, which is about the equivalent of 2,000 bottles of wine. Wow. If we lived in a truly uh, sort of circular recycling economy, then they would have gone, solved the wine problem, retained the wine and used it to put out their next fire. Well, they could have done that. Apart from the wine is still drinkable, believe it or not. Mm. Not the stuff they squeegeed <laughs> off the floor. <laughs> well, it depends well, on your standards, right? <laughs> That's true. So they took this um, bottle of wine and they got all the stuff off the floor and then they took the wine from the bottle and put it into barrels and they've checked it. They took it to a winery to test and it's been deemed fit for consumption and they're going to sell it by the glass at an upcoming event. <laughs> cool. That's going to take <laughs> ages, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, so why, this did was... they, why did they build it in the first place? Well, they build it because people like building large things. Mm. Uh, it was just like a publicity stunt, I suppose. It was sold to a Chinese restaurant in Austria and they had it on display. It was in a giant climate controlled glass chamber. It's that's really right. cool. So it's like a big fridge. Mm. Um, and they think that's where the problem came from. They think the uh, electricity went off. And so when it was not as heated, mm. then wine expands um, or liquids expand in a bottle when the temperatures are changed. And they think uh, that's what led uh, to the leaking. Yeah. Well, so it got cooler and it. No, it got warmer. warmer so yeah. it was in a fridge and it got warmer. So it expanded and it pushed the cork up and left a little bit of a gap where the wine could come out. Yeah. And I guess they brought the fire department because they were a bit scared about what was going to happen. They couldn't tell where it was leaking from to begin with. Well, it's a big lot of glass and they were worried it might explode. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it could have just shattered onto them. And, you know, that's a lot of deaths in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, if you order a glass of wine out of this bottle, do they have a sort of bodybuilder who has to come and pour it? How does that work? Yeah. I think that the idea was that the wine in the big bottle was probably never supposed to be drunk. Mm. It was just a display thing. <laughs> uh, but then once it started leaking out, they were like, oh, I'm going to have to drink it now. It's like, you know, when you have a bottle of wine in your fridge and suddenly the electricity goes off and you're like, well, I'm going to have to drink all the wine in the fridge now. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing, James. Is it not? I don't think so. I've had a lot of electricity problems <laughs> in my house recently. Um, so, so, yeah. So you were mentioning another oh, rival bottle of wine. Okay, yeah, I forgot about that. So <laughs> this has the world Guinness World Record for being the largest filled glass wine bottle. But when I was doing the research for this fact, I found another one in Switzerland that was way bigger. <laughs> like way, way bigger. And so I can only think that there's some technicality that it's not made of glass because I couldn't quite tell okay. from the images. Right. Or maybe it wasn't full of wine. Right, so right, I couldn't right. really tell. Um, so these giant bottles of wine, they yeah. are a thing, but I didn't know that they're that most of the wine on earth is transported in giant bottles. 
Really? Or a huge amount of it. Yeah. So, I okay, I didn't know this. And then I told a few people who are a generation older than me, and they all knew it. So maybe this is a generational thing. Uh-huh. But loads of wine, when it's shipped, is not shipped in bottles. It's shipped in bulk tankers. Mm-hmm. Did you guys know this? What do you mean, like a, like a petrol tanker? Kind of, yeah. Really? Like in a shipping container. But obviously a special container. Not, they don't just pour it into a shipping container and then seal it up. <laughs> but basically, uh, 45% of, of the wine imported into the UK arrives not in a bottle. It arrives in these massive containers. The crappier wine, right? Because I think if you're getting the really hardcore, <laughs> good South of France stuff, then it's bottled it's, in the place. It's yes. quite a lot, though. I mean, they bottle mm. so much here. And they have labels which are from you know overseas wines just here that they put on. So there's a place in southwest England uh, called Avonmouth. And Avonmouth... Uh, near the muth of the River Avon, Avon muth. Okay, anyway, they've got a. <laughs> they have a hangar there, which is the size of twelve football pitches, and it's owned by a firm who are a specialist bottler, and they fill up seven hundred and twenty thousand bottles of wine there alone every day. Uh-huh. Really, Can you believe that? And wow. they, the wine arrives in these massive plastic bladders, basically. Mm-hmm. They're called flexi tanks, right? And then they have a special pump and tilt system, they call it, to get the last 150 litres out of each bladder. Is that when you're sort of shaking yeah. it to get the dregs out? Basically. And do you have to get it you have to get it directly into the bottles? That must be quite no, difficult. Not, do you submerge the bottles into the bottles? <laughs> yeah, well, how do you do it? I don't know. The interview must I read be a tap. didn't. It's probably, a t- it's probably a tap. It's probably a tap system. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but these these bags are then soaked with wine because they're obviously, you know, li- liquid proof on the outside, but yeah. on the inside they're completely soaked with wine. But those bags are then shredded and turned into traffic cones. No way. And that's why traffic cones are like orangey red in colour. Exactly. Not well, exactly. <laughs> no, maybe not. But it is maybe why drunk people are drawn to traffic cones. Because they just know at some level. Just another hit. That's yeah. amazing. Isn't that that's cool? Really that's cool. really cool. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. That's like the um, kind of inheritor of butlers. Because butlers are originally bottlers, right? That's, I didn't know oh. that was where that comes from. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Bot- Bottelier uh, is the king's bottler who would bottle up all his wine. And I suppose they're your modern-day butlers and even... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know that from 1636 to 1860, it was illegal to sell wine by the bottle in the UK. You would go to the shop and you'd have your own bottle with your um, initials on it. And then <laughs> cool. they would fill it up and they'd work out how much you'd bought and by volume and you'd pay by volume and the reason was wine bottle making was kind of quite common in the 17th century but not until the 19th century could you make it so they were all the same size and so duplicitous shopkeepers might kind of sell you a bottle which is a lot smaller than the normal bottles so that's why they made it illegal that's that's gonna be hard to hide your alcohol problem when you rock up with 10 bottles (laughs) (laughs) another big party mr shriver (laughs) isn't that just the same as leaving the shop a minute later with 10 bottles which is what we do today exactly how do you um, hide your alcohol problem normally if you're leaving the supermarket with 10 bottles of wine every day i've got a mustache (laughs) (laughs) i send my son in sometimes again you've got a full facial beard how is a mustache going to help. I know, it's so distracting. They're like, whoa, that guy's weird. Let's not question his story. <laughs> I'm kind of annoyed with uh, wine bottles, though. Having done the research for this fact, Go on, annoyed with them. well, they're so inefficient. 
They're so heavy. Yeah. They're made for most of them are made from green glass, which is <clears throat> quite hard to recycle. Mm. And also we import so much and bottle so much here that actually even if you recycle it, it's quite hard to find uses for all of it. Oh, well, you can get or you could get paper wine bottles, which oh. are an answer to this cuz I read about those. Yeah, but it's kind of sad because it was in 2014, wasn't it, that they start they sort of went um, global with them, this company, and they're made from compressed recycled paper and so they're incredibly light and they so they weigh 65 grams, which is a seventh of a wine bottle if a wine bottle's empty and then they had the little sort of bagging inside you get inside boxed wine and really quickly the company um, folded <laughs> very clever so that was um, a real shame was that intentional though that when you said folded it was but I stole it so okay uh, yeah okay. Uh, oh, but said... it did the company folded okay you could have said crumpled <laughs> like that common phrase the company crumbled yeah. that's the way the company crumbles <laughs> as they all say um, do you know who is known as the father of the modern bottle ooh is it someone famous who we will have heard of it's someone not famous who you will have heard of oh who we will oh yeah. is it someone who's around around Guy Fawkes era Quite close to Guy, one generation away from Guy Fawkes' yes. era. Is it oh, Everard Ever Digby? Digby? It's not. It's not. Oh. But it's someone I was confused with it's, him. It's, uh, Ken Elm, Ken Ken Elm Elm Digby. son, Ken Elm Digby. <laughs> yes. Wow, they're back. The Digbys are back. For anyone so, just listening, this is a four-year callback. <laughs> you really have to put the hours in to be having a good time now. Okay, so Everard Digby, who was the gunpowder plotter, his son was Sir Ken Elm Digby, and he kind of came up with ways of making really good glass because uh, he was an al- alchemist and he was like taking I really sand. felt like you were going to say alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like adding metals and oxides to his sand and making it really, really hot and making really good glass. And he could make darker glass as well, which would make the wa- wine not spoil as quickly. Yeah. So that's a high achieving family, the Digby's, weren't they? I found a story about um, so this fact is about wine leaking out and losing precious wine. Um, I found a story similar to this Um, in Canada. There's a company called Mission Hill. They make wine, and um, they had an employee called Brent Crozier, and he was a cellarman. So he worked inside the factory, and for years his job was blending wines, and he was transferring them between tanks. Um, He accidentally left a valve open when he wasn't meant to. As a result, 5,680 litres of Sauvignon Blanc spilled to the ground and went down a drain. So it cost them $162,500. He was fired, obviously, um, for losing that amount. But it's not the first time he did it. So back 18 months earlier, he left a valve open and he flushed 11,000 litres of wine down a drain. And they gave him a second chance. But it does sound wow. to me like there's someone in that drain with a massive bladder. <laughs> <laughs> like an accomplice, doesn't it? Just You're right. It's this. a con job. Yeah. yeah. Did you guys see the story or remember the story last year? That tweet that was put out by Hawksmoor restaurant in Manchester, which was to the customer who accidentally got given a bottle of Chateau Le Pain Pomerol 2001, which is £4,500 on our menu last night. Hope you enjoyed your evening. To the member of staff who accidentally gave it away, Chin up, one-off mistakes happen. We love you anyway. Wow. wow. Okay. What lucky. a good employer. Yeah, lucky. Yeah, that's it's, amazing. Has that happened again since, though? He's Is been it? fired. It happened repeatedly. Wow, that must... But the thing is, a lot of enjoying wine they've shown is if you know it's more mm. expensive, you like it more, right? Mm. Yeah. And if you're thinking you're buying the... 3.99 bottle of wine off yeah. the Hawksmoor menu which I, yeah. I don't know if they go down that low but if you think you're buying the cheap one yeah. you get the expensive one you might not enjoy it as much right? no yeah. they probably would have I mean no no wine can be good enough to surely be 
to be I can't differentiate anything above about eight or ten quid, basically. Okay. No. But have you ever tasted the four thousand five hundred? You never know, that might be yeah, such an I have, explosion. I have one every other week and I can't taste the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Blind testing. Um, this massive bottle of wine that I talked about at the start, you could um, if you had drank one bottle of wine to yourself every day since we started this podcast six years ago or yeah. so, you'd just be draining the bottom of the bottle now. That's a great calculation. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. you would you would need it after listening to this podcast every week for six years. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that when Michelangelo sculpted David, the town mayor told him that the nose was too big. So Michelangelo picked up some dust, climbed to the top of the statue, sprinkled the dust down, and claimed they had fixed it. Ah, so was he making, like, um, sculpting noises while he was doing that? <laughs> yeah. He must have been, right? So with his mouth, yeah. <laughs> he went even further. He went even more method. He did take up a hammer and chisel and stuff. Oh. So this was in 1504, and it was when David was just being displayed in Florence. It was revealed. And Piero Soderini was the town's sort of mayor or chief. Anyway, Soderini said, probably displaying his artistic uh, appreciation. You know, I think the nose is a bit out of proportion with the rest of the, uh, rest of the thing, isn't it? Do you want to go up and fix it? And Michelangelo, everyone was surprised at the time because Michelangelo was very touchy and really mm. disliked criticism. Mm. And But he said, yeah, absolutely. I'm so sorry. You're absolutely right. It's enormous. And so he picked up a hammer and a chisel and secretly a handful of dust, climbed to the top, pretended to chip away at it. And then Soderini went, oh, that's absolutely perfect. He's nailed it. <laughs> Stop there. Came back down again. This is like so the wine funny. tasting thing with the prices. Absolutely. If you're told something is better. You believe it. You believe it. This, do we know that this fact is completely true? Well, it comes from this amazing book, which is sort of the foundational book of all art history, which is by uh, Giorgio Vasari, and it's called The Lives of the Most Excellent Painters, Sculptors and Architects. And yeah, so he sort of founded art history and mm. wrote these incredible biographies of all the great artists up until then, um, or, you know, not all of them, but many of them, many of the Florentine ones especially. And so there are a lot of facts are very, very true. And then we think he had an eye for drama and liked to embellish. So yes. but he, he was friends with Michelangelo and he was, he, yes. Uh, but well, even like the, fan. this book, The Lives of the Artists, so the origin story of this book is that he was sitting at a dinner, this is in the 1500s, um, at the Roman Palazzo with the Cardinal at the time. And the Cardinal was talking about a collection of paintings uh, along with the other people. And he kept noticing they were getting dates wrong and certain, they were attributing certain bits of art to different people. So he said um, that if someone was going to collect all this information together, they should have someone who knows it really well. And they suggested that he do it. So that was his sort of claim for it. But the reality is that two of the people he claimed that were at the dinner with him had died already. Um, <laughs> and they don't think he was even in Rome at the time <laughs> when wow. that dinner was said to have happened. So he was someone who, who did have a a bit of a um, sort of like Brian he had, Blessed or... He, had, he, he was definitely the Brian Blessed <laughs> yeah. of his day maybe because he also claimed that he rescued David at one point. So he was born, he was very young when David was sculpted but in 1527 there were these massive riots in Florence and uh, one of the rioters, it was anti-Medici riots and one of the rioters threw a bench from a parapet which knocked off David's arm. Threw a bench? Yeah, threw a bench, <laughs> yeah, threw a bench from a well, parapet. Who was this? Goliath? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so his arm yeah. came off yeah. and for says that he was a boy at the time he was about 16 and he fought his way through these rioting marauding crowds to rescue the various pieces of the arm it can't be true and take well, them to safety actually what they didn't say is that this was a miniature bench that a travelling salesman had brought <laughs> Wow, we're going Ooh, I mega love on callbacks. I love mixed episode callbacks. I love it. He had a broken nose, Michelangelo. Like yeah. David supposedly yes. did. Yes. 
Oh yeah, because he he yeah. got into an argument with one of his friends or something. Yeah, is that right? His, his friend threw a bench at him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was he was called Pietro Torrigiano, and he was supposedly envious of Michelangelo's skills, mm. and then but he was also had a very bad temper, and so smashed him in the face and he said I gave him such a blow on the nose that I felt bone and cartilage go down like biscuits beneath my knuckles <laughs> and this mark of mine he will carry with him to the grave blimey uh, but it basically screwed his life because everyone loved Michelangelo because Michelangelo was with the Medici's at the time wasn't he so um, like he had the protection of the of the people who ran everything right and so Torrigiano had to leave Florence he went all the way to England uh, where possibly he was hired by Henry VIII, and then he started wow. sculpting um, nobles in England, and then wanted to go back to Florence to try and get some help, some like students and stuff. But when he went back, no one would go with him because they remembered what he did to Michelangelo. Wow! Yeah, this is why you should bully and pick on people who are inferior to, or smaller, or less talented <laughs> than you are. Because if you pick on people above you, then you will reap the consequences, won't you? You're absolutely right. How is your bullies league coming along? <laughs> it's going very well. Thanks, Andy. You're next, by the way. <laughs> um, so I was looking for Michelangelo, like just what he looked like. And he's in the Sistine Chapel as a self-portrait, we think. Which is, but it's not him as a person. It's not him looking healthy. It's him as a piece of flayed skin. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's there's an image of the Last Judgment. That's one of the bits of the Sistine Chapel, and there's Saint Bartholomew trying to get into heaven, kind of get God's attention, say, "Hey, I'm I'm a saint. Uh, let me mm-hmm. in." And in one hand he's holding a knife, and in one hand he's holding his own flayed skin. Mm. Yeah. And it's his, it's his, he has got skin as well. So it's not clear when he grew this. Huh. Second skin. Well, you can't okay. see him 360, presumably, so maybe it's off his back or something. No, 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 no you can face. see him all the way. It's the face. He's got, what it's saying is he's got two faces. It's not completely accurate. I see. Michelangelo didn't paint a completely flayed St. Bartholomew, because <laughs> that might have been a bit grim. But the hanging skin that this guy's clutching mm-hmm. is Michelangelo, and we know because he's got a little broken nose. But then yeah. again, if you break your nose, it's the bone that breaks. It's not the skin that breaks. And so how can you tell if you flay someone's skin? How can you tell if they got a broken nose? That's a good point. That's true. That's he knew point. nothing about anatomy, did he? But he used to paint um, sort of very uh, buff people with an eight-pack as opposed to a six-pack. Um, does that exist, an eight-pack? Yeah, it does. It's it. extremely rare. Oh, okay. Uh, but so it does exist. I've got and one. <laughs> yeah. I've got one. We're not talking about cans of beer now. (laughs) Oh, I haven't got one then. So a six-pack is your basic, um, like, muscles of your abdomen. Yeah. Um, But a very small percentage of people do have eight uh, muscles down there. And they think this is a clue as to who might have been one of his main um, people who he based his paintings and his sculptures off. Because if you look at a lot of his sculptures, they all have this particular unusual anatomical thing. Well, in in 2015, it helped to verify two pieces that they were tiny bronze statues um, that someone had claimed was Michelangelo's, and they said Mm. there's no way of proving. They did years and years of research on it, and they had eight packs. Um, They had sort of oddly shaped toes, which was another Mm. classic Mm -hmm. feature of Michelangelo's, and they confirmed them as a result. Uh, One of his other things, so toes, eight pack, what's another thing that might be classic Michelangelo? Tiny todger. Uh, No, but you're in the right area. Enormous (laughs) Enormous <laughs> testicles. <laughs> Anatomically correct pubic hair. Okay. That supposedly yeah. is something that to, to look out for. In, did you say bronze these are? Yeah, these are in bronze. That's a tough cast in bronze. Yeah. yeah. Very fine. Yeah. And I, I mean, 
If you're doing pubic hair, I'd be surprised if it wasn't anatomically correct. Where are you going to put it? On the belly button? <laughs> as soon as you're choosing to do pubic hair, you're putting yeah. it over the pubic region, aren't you? Yeah. Well, it's classic Leonardo to have the pubic hair in the ears of the uh, people he was doing. <laughs> Um, if he wanted to send someone a present, Michelangelo would send them 33 pairs. Sorry? Of what? <laughs> of apples. <laughs> 33 pairs as a present. One, okay. One for every year of Christ's life. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah. Do you know why he did that? One for every year no, yeah, of Christ's yeah. life. <laughs> okay, so I now understand the number, but I don't understand why that particular object. No, I don't know. Oh, I don't okay. know. He was very stingy. I know that. I think he had a reputation for that. So maybe they were the cheapest thing around really? at the time. Okay. Yeah, apparently he was kind of horrible. Uh, quite oh. mean, bit of a brat, very difficult to work with, uh, a terrible snob. And he, when he died, they found an uh, absolute fortune in his house because he was so penny-pinching throughout his life. Uh, he had just ducats in jars all over the house. He was very old. He was, he was 88. That's Scrooge. That is Scroogey, isn't it? Wow. Or yeah. it's Scrooge McDuck. Isn't it yes, like kind of swimming in his own ducats? Yes, yes, you're right. Scrooge yeah. McDuckett. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> As you say, he was very rich. Do you know what his estimated worth was of all what the stuff? Is, in uh, gross or net? One point six million ducats. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, uh, so fifty thousand florins. That's oh, great! The same, yeah. There wow. we go. Yeah. 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 So James was bang on. 50,000 florins. Yeah, so it's not... about thirty-five million in okay. today's money. Which wow. is a lot for an artist. That is... Well, he was one of the big ones, I suppose. He was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he lived a long, old time. 88 is ancient for someone to get to. So I and suppose... he kept working as well. Yes, he did, didn't he? So he would have been getting royalties, I guess, from earlier works yeah. all the way through. Does a royalty yeah. system exist for that? Um, well, it was more kind of dukes, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah. That's a joke about uh, the Medici family. It's very good if you're an art historian. <laughs> cool. Oh, no, I'll, I'll do some research and get back <laughs> to you with my laugh. art historians out there absolutely cracking up at that. <laughs> um, he apparently, despite all his wealth, um, was not into personal hygiene. Um, he, this is, there's a lot of legends about him, and, you know, Giorgio Vasari is one of the people to perpetuate a lot of those. Um, so this is not from him, I don't believe, but another legend is that when he died, because he showered so little and bathed so little, they had to peel his clothes off him because he hadn't changed in so long. It had sort of congealed to his body. Mm. Really? Yeah, so it wasn't a very striptease ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your Michelangelo grand tonight. You'll be having to peel my congealed clothes off my body. Well, just wait for me to die. <laughs> don't be shocked when you see where my pubic hair is. It's... <laughs> Jesus, I was upset not to go to your stag do last weekend, Andy, but now I'm starting to think I got off, got off lightly. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that a plane was once built which had nine wings. You would think it would have to be an even number. I know. I think this plane actually had 18 wings, ah. but that is a mm. controversial theory. Well, well what, okay, explain what it is and we'll decide whether it's 9 or 18. All right, so uh, this came, comes from an article on airspacemag.com, which is a great website about uh, air and space. And this plane was built in 1921. It was called the Noviplano. And so you know how you have a normal plane, two yep. wings? Then you've got a biplane, which has... Two layers of wings, mm. although that technically the top one only counts as one wing, supposedly. Okay. So uh, does a biplane have four wings or two? Okay. The okay. Novaplano was another level. It had three sets of wings front to back, and each one was three layers high. Okay. Okay. So like a biplane, but turn it into a triplane. 
Yeah. And then do that three times. Yes. So if you're going by biplane logic, it just had it just had six wings, right? No, no, because it had three decks. No, I know, but didn't have three wings each. I know, but aren't you saying that a biplane has two wings? I, th- I thought you were saying that a biplane had three wings because it's got two wings as a normal plane and then it's got one at <laughs> the top. Which well, I, out, yeah. I thought he was saying that too, but he wasn't. He then confirmed that it has... You think a biplane officially has two wings because they count as one each. It's very weird. A monoplane has two wings and so does a biplane. That's frustrating. I think then, by your logic, it doesn't matter how many layers up, it's still just one wing. No way. Okay, this plane has one wing. Stop trying to destroy the fact. Not, it, looks, it is amazing. It looks insane. I'm yeah. going to put a picture up on Twitter. It's. I think you better have the way yeah. we've explained it. <laughs> so why do we not have this same plane taking us to, you know, Tenerife? Well, it crashed almost immediately. Oh. Its second ever test flight, it crashed. Um, okay. It was, I'm, I'm amazed it didn't crash on its first flight, just because mm. it's so hard to land on water. Because it was a well, it's a seaplane, though, right? It was a it was a flying boat, which is slightly different to a seaplane. <laughs> <laughs> a is floating about... plane or a flying boat, and they're different things. They are they? different things. Yeah, yeah. Is this about how they identify? Is it like the flying boat <laughs> sees itself as mostly a boat? So the the seaplane is you know the one where Indiana Jones gets onto. It's got floats under its feet, right? Yes. Mm. So that they land on water. All these, feet, things, hey? all these things land on <laughs> Okay, look, we don't have time to get into that. Okay, those are the planes which are basically look like they're wearing massive shoes, okay? Because they float on those okay. things. Then there's flying boats and they have the buoyancy built into the fuselage. So they yeah. they land basically on water. The main body of the plane is the thing that's floating mm-hmm. on the water. But in the USA, seaplanes are called float planes. And they use the term seaplane to describe both float planes and flying boats. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> so wait, which one was this? This is a flying boat. Flying boat. This is a flying boat. So the yeah. fuselage was basically a boat, yeah. Yeah, but exactly. then it had wings. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it got it smashed up on its second ever flight. And it, it, it now exists as a model uh, and a few bits of wreckage mm. in a museum. It was in Italy it was flying, Lake Maggiore. Really? Yeah. And it was, it was meant to be a passenger plane, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the wings were made of uh, linen, as far as I can tell. What? Linen? Well, canvas, you know. It was really early oh. days of flight, obviously. God, if someone's just attached a sheet to the outside of my planes <laughs> and is hoping it's going to fly, hey, I'm not surprised it crashed. Nine sheets. Nine <laughs> sheets. That's <laughs> what the phrase nine sheets to the wind means, isn't it? Is that a phrase? I, I think it's three sheets to the wind. Oh, is it? Oh, it depends well, how you're counting them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's been lots of really cool planes in history, haven't they? There's hmm. loads of... Especially during military times, they always try and invent new things. And, you know, even when they'd started making airplanes, they didn't really know how they worked and stuff like that. So there was lots of different ideas. Um, I really like these parasite um, fighters that they tried to do for most of the 20th century. And the idea is you have one big plane... And then inside it, you have lots of little planes, and then they fly out <laughs> no. and attack like the town. And so the big plane takes you there and saves all the petrol for the other guys, and then they can go on little forays. Has That's it has so it, cool? Has it landed, or are you flying out of a fl- plane? You're mid-flight? flying out of the plane mid-flight. What? Wow. Yeah, and they've tried to do it loads and loads of times. Usually, the problem is that they just all crash into each other. <laughs> that happens quite a lot. Um, but they experimented from the nineteen from 1915 all the way through to the late 1950s. The wow. USSR were the only ones. Who who really made anything that was kind of useful. Everyone else tried it and couldn't. And the reason we don't do it anymore, and I didn't realise this is a thing, is these days you can refuel your aeroplane while it's flying. <laughs> oh, Isn't that amazing? I don't, do you, I've never noticed I a plane I'm it. on stopping at a petrol station, ever. <laughs> well, that's when you're in the airport, that's what the petrol station is. They come and fill you with petrol, right? Yeah, yeah. but so yeah. how do you refuel while it's flying? It's 
really weird. You it's just so get cool. one aeroplane with loads of petrol in it, and mm. you fly it next to the aeroplane with not much petrol in it, and then you attach them together. Yeah. Uh, so it's not my planes that I've been on that are getting refueled. No, no, no. you're not. Probably not. Yeah. Damn. But if you've seen the movie Air Force One, they refuel the plane mid-flight. Do they? Yeah, and Harrison Ford uses that as the big moment to sort of get to another plane. I think I'm right You must have to have that. a really long, um, you know, the toggles you yeah. put in. Because you know, it's sometimes quite hard when you park your car on the wrong side of a petrol pump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you have to stretch it all the way around. Yeah. yeah. But... Yeah, if you fly on the wrong side of the aeroplane, that's yeah. going to be really awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, on this, on this mid-air thing, because yeah. it is insane. So there was a flying boat... Okay, in the 1930s called the Short Empire, right? And the problem was they couldn't get enough fuel into it for it to make it all the way across the Atlantic, okay? Uh So that's the problem. But it could be loaded with more fuel than it could take off with. So... It okay. can only get into the air if it has under a certain amount of fuel on it. Okay. But once you get it into the air, you can load it with extra fuel. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the idea was this plane took off f- towards the USA from uh, Britain uh, with not enough fuel to get there. Yeah. And then while it was over Ireland, it would be refueled by another plane <laughs> as it went. It would mm. take off without enough fuel to get to where That's it was amazing. meant to go. And it had to refuel yeah. with 800 extra gallons of fuel. That's yeah. extraordinary. We um, do have we do have planes now that can carry other um, well flying uh, machines. Uh, there's a plane called White Knight Two, and this is the well. So it's not operational yet, but it will be within a few years, I think. It looks like a catamaran, really. So it or it looks kind of like two planes of Siamese twins, and one of their wings is fused. Yes, and oh, yeah. it's it's an incredible looking thing, but it's actually built to be able to take off like sort of two planes stuck together, and then hanging underneath this shared wing will be the Virgin rocket, which will then take tourists into space. So not wow. only do you get to go to space if you pay for this, but you get the bonus of being suspended <laughs> under a weird double Siamese plane catamaran thing. It's it's extraordinary. Have you ever seen footage of it um, when it drops the plane? Oh, no, I haven't seen that. So seen that's the thing. Obviously, the rocket can't thrust its uh, or boost its thrusters while it's still attached to this yeah. uh, other plane. So it literally plummets and they have to turn on the engine as they're dropping wow. and pump the fuel and then it kind of just finds its way so you're in sort of free fall for a while when you're inside is this in the rocket or in the plane in the rocket, rocket. wow yeah that's god cool. imagine if people have bought tickets and they're listening to this now having not realised because that sounds terrifying <laughs> I think you would have watched a YouTube video before pressing <laughs> purchase you're right you, you just mentioned two planes being stuck together is what mm. this looks like yeah there is only one time as far as I'm aware that two planes have st- stuck together mid-flight Right. This was in 1940. This was a training flight above Australia. Two bomber planes crashed together. Okay. Disaster, obviously. Except that one of them basically jammed over the other one. And they just got stuck together in midair. So the one on top had its wings and its controls still intact. And the one beneath had the engine working. (laughs) The pilot of the plane on top managed to land successfully. No. Both that's ridiculous. Planes. That doesn't sound. That sounds like it's made up by Dan's yeah. Italian <laughs> Brian Blessed guy. I yeah. know nobody died. Wow. One person um, jumped it, out and was hit by a propeller. Even he was fine eventually. <laughs> he just recovered. But it's amazing that it just so happens that the engine works for this one. I know. And the 
steering works. It's like, oh, the coffee machine worked for this one, but luckily the sandwich maker works on the other one. <laughs> Do you think they had a chat between the planes going, we're like Jack Spratt and his wife, aren't we? <laughs> Uh, just on this um, thing that you were talking about carrying space shuttles, mm. um, the largest plane that's ever been made, which was the Anatov AN-225 Maria, which was made in Ukraine uh, in Soviet times, um, this has the record for the biggest payload ever taken, and they carried shuttles from one part of Russia to the or one part of the Soviet Union to the other. Mm. That was the main job of them. Uh, and one time they carried a generator for a gas power plant in Armenia, which weighed 247,000 kilograms, which is the weight of 80 elephants. Oh. And that's the largest payload of any aeroplane ever. That's that extraordinary. is so cool. Isn't that amazing? And then um, it went into commercial service in the early 2000s. And um, <laughs> no way. Do you have extra luggage? Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my emotional support elephant with me. <laughs> When I say commercial, I don't mean you could buy a flight on it. Okay, okay. It was used for companies. And actually, at one stage, the American military took it and um, took 216,000 ready meals to military personnel in Oman. Wow. So So that's cool. We are not out of chicken or fish for this flight. (laughs) It was transported on 375 pallets weighing 187.5 tonnes of ready meals. Oh, man. Um, Do you know why nuclear planes have never been tried? Because they sound dangerous. Mm. They do sound dangerous. They are dangerous. So people have kept trying all the way through kind of like the um, thing you were mentioning James the parasite ones yeah the parasite planes yeah so I think the USA have tried I'm sure the Soviet Union tried as well basically they could not work out how to deal with radiation uh, and to keep the planes light because obviously Mm -hmm. to protect against radiation you need a very heavy Mm -hmm. thick armor Mm -hmm. stuff so one thing they considered doing this was in the 50s in the USA was just hiring pilots who were so elderly that they would certainly die before any effects of radiation got through to them. Right. Wow. That was okay. their plan. What a move. <laughs> That's crazy. So JFK cancelled that plan. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. <laughs> those, I've, I've found a few sort of, as we were saying earlier, those that military period of plane innovation, which is extraordinary decisions they had to make. So uh, when, when the Navy was out and they needed planes that were on their ships, in the early days, they didn't have landing strips that were long enough so they could launch... Um, with some help, but they couldn't get back because it was too short. So what they did was they started toying with ideas like building a plane, which this was prototype called the Blackburn Blackbird. And the idea was that you could take off, but you weren't meant to return. The plane was designed to be ditched in the ocean by the ship. But luckily, you... all the pilots were so old that they were expected <laughs> to die before they got to the... Yeah, exactly. Wait, sorry, these were single-use planes? They, they, no, if you were successful, you came back and yeah. you ditched the plane as close to the ship as possible, and hopefully the ship got to you before both you and the plane sank. If it did, they would lift the plane back onto the ship, and then they would rebuild it, and you could reuse it. What? Well, they had no choice because no, there was but no I other... Sorry, I'm confused. When you say ditch the plane, do you mean fly it into the sea? Yeah, fly into the ocean. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So the pilot would be waiting with the plane while it's sinking. Another thing they tried um, to solve that uh, was something called the flying pancake, which oh. uh, the flying pancake either had no wings, one wing, or an infinite number of wings, is depending it all, on how you look it at it. Wing? It's all wing. It's, <gasps> and it's pancake shaped, so it's flat. Yeah. And it's kind of tilted. And it's got massive propellers on it. And so 
if you are sailing into a headwind, then yeah. the wind can help you just take off by using the shape of your flying pancake. Nice. And if you weren't going into a headwind, it had these massive propellers that you could create your own headwind. Wow. And so it could like blow air over your aerofoil and help you take off that way. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And they look kind of like a flying saucer, right? They do, yeah, yeah. don't like the idea of flying something called a pancake because I imagine pancakes <laughs> flipping 180 <laughs> degrees in the air. Yeah. And the reason we don't use them now is basically because jet engines came in, so we didn't need them anymore. Mm, okay. Once you had jet engines, you could get to a really high speed really quickly. Ah, mm. so right, it did, it sense. worked fine. Yeah, it worked. Um, oh, God, we've got to talk about the inflator plane quickly. Okay. <laughs> Just very quickly. This was the sort of foldable, collapsible plane that was commissioned by Goodyear, uh, of course, in the 1950s. And it could deflate and be transported in like a three and a half foot container, little container. And it was actually a brilliant idea. So, so it was built in just 12 weeks, which does sound a worryingly short time in which to build an entire plane, like <laughs> designed and built. Uh, but Goodyear, the idea was that a single person would be able to hand pump it. And so you could drop it behind enemy lines. So you drop it from your <laughs> plane behind enemy lines to where, you know, your men were captured. And they'd have their little hand pump on the ground, I suppose, waiting for this moment. And they'd pump it up uh, until it got big enough and then they could take off. So did it have genius. like a little uh, little tube in case your pump wasn't working so you could blow it by mouth? I think well. it must have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, awesome. it had a test flight in 1957 and uh, it sort of went into a spiral and one of the wings got floppy and folded on top of it and uh, got chopped off by the propeller. And oh, I know. So it never really, it really never took off. Yep. I tell you what, with that and your um, paper company folding. <laughs> it's been a bad day. It's been a bad day for puns worldwide. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show. And that is my fact. My fact is that this year, a sperm bank lost a court case to a man named Dick Weiner. So this happened in Oregon, in America. And um, the jury who was uh, dealing with the case awarded 400000 American dollars to two Oregon dog breeders because the International Canine Semen Bank accidentally destroyed both of their Labrador sperms. Why did you not tell us the name of the other breeder? Yeah. Um, because... Fanny vagina is not as interesting. <laughs> to be fair, so this is from Oregon Live, mm. um, which is is a big newspaper in Oregon. Mm. But um, in every other report I've seen, it's Richard Weiner. Uh, I only just discovered that before we came uh, upstairs to record this. So, but he's still. It's still you know. Mate. Parents should have known. His name's Dick Weiner. His name's Dick Weiner, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. I, I didn't know there were, was an international canine semen bank. Mm. Did you not? No, I who, didn't. Who do you bank with? <laughs> 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 I just keep all of mine in Barclays. You know? <laughs> Did you do that on purpose, Barclays? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's a big industry, isn't it? And it seems to be getting bigger. So it used to exist mainly for professional dog breeders, so that if you had, you know, a, a top dog, then you could pass on their genes for generations. But now it seems to be just sentimental dog owners who want an exact copy of their beloved pet before, mm. you know, after they've died. It's and they send on off people their... who don't know how genetics works. Basically, <laughs> yeah. it's you won't, yeah. you will get a quarter of the dog you had. 
Well, it's better than nothing, isn't it, Andy? Okay, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. We should say this, this mistake <laughs> with the dog semen that, that Dick Wiener um, found, this happened 20 years ago. Yeah. This story goes all the way back. Wow. I know. Well, no, no. It's, it's, they, they knew that they stuffed up 20 years ago. Exactly. Dick Wiener only found out a few years ago because an ex-employee told him randomly. He's like, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, he was a whistleblower. Yeah. So that he deposited the sperm in the 90s, I think. Yeah. And yeah. then in the maybe late 90s, early noughties, it was accidentally thawed out, mm-hmm. making it worthless. Mm-hmm. And wow. then 20, nearly 20 years later, a disgruntled ex-employee must have wow. told him. Unfortunately, this guy who thawed out the um, sperm had done the same thing 18 months earlier, hadn't he? <laughs> For 500,000 litres was flushed away. Um, okay, Do, well... I, I looked up their costs. The International Seaman Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canine Seaman Bank, very mm-hmm. important. Um, for To store your dog's semen for a year... It's three hundred and twenty-four dollars to deposit and store it for a year. But then every year after that yeah. is seventy-nine dollars a year, which is, I think, uh, what Amazon Prime used to cost. <laughs> it's a very different service, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you got to weigh it up when you're making your budget choices. <laughs> yeah. But and you, another thing you can do with this these banks, and this is not. We should say other dog semen banks are available. We're not, mm. you know. Um, but another thing you can do, I think, is ship your dog's testicles to them after your dog has been neutered. You absolutely mm. can, yeah. What? Snip them off and ship them off. Snip them off and ship them off. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you do. Wow. You can get instructions of how to do it yourself, I think. So most people do it at a vet and say, yeah. would you mind sending these balls to the bank? But um, they, some banks do give... <laughs> <laughs> Some banks do give instructions on how to package up your testicles, and you have to send them off ASAP, no like shit. within no kidding, two really. or three hours. Okay, yeah. you must have to send them in a special cool, cool box. Or yeah, something, I think right? you must do. Yeah, yeah. No, no, you've yeah. got to order the packaging. You can't in. just walk into the into the Royal Mail with a pair of <laughs> dog knackers <laughs> and buy an envelope can you no and, well if you do you've got to go first class because it really is time is <laughs> of the essence do you know um, who did the first ever artificial insemination of a dog no mm. oh, 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 oh everyone can dig me, me. <laughs> No, it was none of the Digby clan. It was an Italian physiologist called Lazzaro Spallanzini. Uh, And we probably... You guys will have heard of him, I'm sure. What was his Um, thing? Frogs in Pants? Frogs in Pants. Frogs in Pants. Exactly. And Bananas in Pyjamas was the sequel, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, He is most famous, among QI researchers at least, for putting male frogs in form-fitting rubber pants um, to prove that... Um, that they couldn't fertilize eggs if they couldn't get what was in their genitals out over the mm, eggs, right. if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he pr- basically proved how reproduction worked. He also was the first person to um, note the effect of cooling on human sperm. So you know how oh. they say that you should wear at least warmish underpants if you want to conceive babies? Is that right, Dan? You've um, yeah, you, well, no, not you, too tight, but yeah, you need to loose, keep it loose, flowing. Um, no, loose is not as as good for you. Oh. Um, they need to be kept reasonably warm. Yes, and you don't put your testicles in on ice, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you, you don't heat have your hot baths, so it's a very odd yeah, sort of warm. You need not to hot. keep it at the right temperature. But he was the first person to notice that, and he noted that um, if you put sperm on snow, they would stop swimming around. Wow. Oh, really? wow. So he would have he would have had microscope technology, I guess. This was after um, this was invented. after okay. what's his name? Yeah, L- Levin Hook. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Gosh, that is really very cool. Yeah, it's yeah. a snow. cool guy. Cool guy. They and can't f- ski. 
Sperm can't ski. <laughs> they just don't uh, go to public school. And the first person to uh, make um, puppies from frozen dog semen uh, was a guy called Stephen W.J. Seeger. Uh, he's still alive, actually. He's a veterinarian from Ireland who uh, moved to Oregon. And this was in 1969. And they um, made some baby Labradors. Uh, and they called them popsicles because they came from frozen semen. Wait, oh, very uh, cool. Did, did you say popsicles? Well, it, that would have been good, wouldn't it? <laughs> the article I read says popsicles, but okay. popsicles would have been way better. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's not a correct thing. Very Guys, cool. have you ever seen fish being artificially inseminated? No. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. I can't emphasize enough how much you have to watch this video on YouTube. But basically, on a lot of fish farms, uh, it's more efficient. Or if you really want to control like how many fish are being inseminated, then you do it artificially. And the way they do it, I actually learned this uh, in an interview with a guy called Mike Freeze, which seems kind of almost suitable, uh, who is a fish farmer in the US. And then I was led to this video of koi fish breeding. So koi carp, very expensive. And they are being bred at Kentucky State University. Look it up, basically. They get the female out of the water. And she's alive and uh, gets laid down in some paper towel for some reason. And then just lifted up and massaged from top to bottom. And you squeeze the eggs out. And what the eggs are is this thick, browny green slime that just spouts out. It's incredible. It's like sludge coming out. So they put that in a bowl, pop her back in the water, get the lad out, do exactly the same with him and it's a little bit less but you squeeze it out, like yeah. ma- it looks like mayonnaise coming out of a mayonnaise thing and then you just stir it up together like you're making a cake Wow! and they wow. mix it together and then you leave that for three to five minutes and pop it back <laughs> <in>. <laughs> It sounds like a recipe It's yeah. a recipe What's for the fish gas mark? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, It's very important to do this with koi carp because they're very shy aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, something about uh, Crufts. This okay. is about uh, champion dogs. Yeah. Yes. Only one dog has ever pooed live in the middle of a Crufts event. <laughs> <laughs> Did he win? Or she win? Instant disqualification. Oh. It's, it's, the video is on YouTube. We're doing a lot of YouTube recommendations today. YouTube's going to be getting some real hits after this podcast. It's incredible. It's 2012. Uh, this is the only one I've found. It's we should say, sorry quickly. We should say for international listeners, Crufts is the biggest dog show in the world. Sorry, but I don't yes. think yeah. it's as well known outside of this country. No. But it's a well, massive it, in dog the UK, show. It's all we talk about. But <laughs> yeah, sorry, Crufts, biggest dog show in the world, and and in, it was in 2012. And the video is online of the full attempt because you know they have to do the full course yeah, and yeah. they do the slalom and they do the seesaw and then they do the jumping over things. Anyway, the, the reaction of the crowd is so funny because <laughs> it's an amazing run. It's going so well, and then the dog just absolutely stops dead and squats down, and the whole crowd goes, "Oh, <laughs> it's amazing!" And the owner gets handed a plastic bag by a crossed ball boy. Oh no! Yeah. God. It's, it, it's very much the Paul Radcliffe of the dog breeding world. <laughs> it's, it's a really funny video. Then why do they have such mad names in Crufts? It's yeah. bizarre. Because so you have to, ha- your dog name has to be uh, involve the name of the breeder somewhere. But I was looking at the best in shows and the list. So the most recent was called Planet Waves Forever Young Daydream Believers. Uh, <laughs> I think last year or the year before it was McVans to Russia with Love. Uh, there was also Afterglow Maverick Saber, Araki Fabulous Willie, <laughs> F Bay's Hidalgo, a good spice. And I can't find any good reason why, except that you know you're not supposed to have replicated names, but. They can't have run out of words so much that all you could use is Iraqi fabulous Willie. That's a wish list on a dating profile, isn't it? (laughs) 
Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Go check them out. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye.